There we are. So I'm going to begin, I'll try to begin each class uh, with a reading from Scripture in order to underscore, uh, admittedly, I, I am teaching this class as Presbyterianism seen as a historical phenomenon. You did not have something called Presbyterianism before the 16th century. Um, but certainly the conviction of the Reformers, which is our conviction, is that, and then the Presbyterians after them in Scotland, is that Presbyterianism best reflects a biblical ecclesiology. Uh, so ecclesiology, I'm going to use that word again in the sermon, just means doctrine of the church, just like theology means doctrine of God. So our, our belief is not uh, that we're just standing on the shoulder of of men, but that, but that the, standing on their shoulders, they were standing on the shoulders of the apostles. So that, that's uh, the belief, even though we are looking at it primarily uh, as, again, a historical phenomenon. So uh, the scripture reading today is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers... Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There were some on top of the copier and some that were made in the copier. Were you able to? Yeah, we seem to have enough, so that's good. I made more, but it's, it looks like we're good. Okay, uh, well, with those words, why don't, why don't we pray together and then begin the class? Father, we're thankful for your word, as always, and uh, certainly... Insofar as we are guided by other men in the history of the church, it is uh, with discerning eyes and ears and hearts. Our interest is to know, is the thing scriptural? Does it arise from the Bible? Uh, and and, and th- growing in that conviction, O oh God, we pray that we would uh, be willing to learn from others that you have used in the church. And to realize that we don't have to start over afresh with every generation, but that we are able to... Uh, we are able to build upon other men's labors, and that's what we seek to do. We pray you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had two weeks off now, uh, one, one of which uh, was because I wasn't here. Uh, I was home, so we're doing better uh, now, thankfully. So let me let me try to bring us back up to speed. We were looking at, if you remember, the distinction between form and freedom. And in fact, I'll write that on the board. That's, that's an important... spectrum, you might say. And that's what we're really going to be exploring today. The other thing we, we were looking at in light of that spectrum or diagram is or were what I call the Presbyterian qualities of the church. And you'll see that uh, on the handout. So we had, um, or excuse me, the qualities. We had covered the practices. We finished that. We looked at the form, freedom, and, uh, and then the qualities, which uh, we, or, or at least I mentioned them. 
at the end last time, but that's really what we need to now unfold, the Presbyterian qualities. So you'll find that on your handout as the second list. So the idea is that, again, using Calvin as the example, Calvin is alive today, uh, and he walks into a Presbyterian church. What would he expect to find? Uh, if, if he saw the super casual sermon with the rock concert, would, would he feel that that church was rightly in the stream of Calvinism, even though many of those churches call themselves Calvinists? On the other side of the spectrum, if he was in a super-duper high church setting, what, would he feel that that was uh, a faithful representation of his teaching as well? Or another way to ask the question, I think this is how Daryl asked it in his book, Recovering Mother Kirk, what would he look for? And what was he looking for uh, in the days of the Reformation? Uh, always remember that uh, the Reformation was a Reformation of worship, uh, which is why, as I've been saying, that the three main branches of the Reformation, Lutheran, Anglican, and, uh, and, and Reformed, even though they were all agreed about sola scriptura and the doctrine of justification, had very different styles or flavors of worship. And that remains true to this day. And so again, they were agreed about justification, but their theology of worship was different. And, and, and ultimately, that's what we're looking for. In fact, those three things I've been maintaining uh, are the three main pegs of the Reformation. Scripture, justification, and worship. Now, looking at the, the practices, which were uh, the presence of set forms, the Lord's Supper, the preaching, uh, office, and ordination, church membership, and the Lord's Day. Remember uh, the idea that there is a church calendar in uh, the Reformed churches. It was just uh, a high view of the Sabbath week by week. And frankly, a higher view of the Sabbath even than uh, the liturgists had of of their holy days. But looking at those practices, I think that it needs to be balanced And this is something Hughes Olive and Old does. It's something that Terry Johnson does, balanced by qualities. Because it isn't enough simply uh, to have the forms. In fact, as Lloyd-Jones says, and we're going to look at this some more, another word for freedom, this is lowercase s, is spirit. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but it is possible to have the forms and to lose the spirit. And the way to avoid that is to understand uh, the spirit of the forms or the qualities. And so that's what we're looking at today. Terry Johnson speaks of three qualities. I have my own list. I'm going to give you Terry Johnson's list, Hughes Olive and Old's list, and then my list, which is a hybrid of theirs. And I think we looked at this in an earlier class, but he says that uh, reformed worship, which he says is neither high church nor low church. Now, this is where Daryl and Terry Johnson, who are both fairly heavyweight scholars and, and historical scholars on Presbyterianism, this is where they would somewhat disagree. And I'm, I'm camping out more on what Terry Johnson has to say. Presbyterianism is neither high nor low, whereas Daryl would say it's much more on the high church spectrum, but with its own brand of high church worship. So I think they're just phrasing it a little bit differently. But the, the way to maintain the balance where you don't run into the excesses of the high church or 
uh, the trivialities of the low church is to have worship, he says, that is simple, spiritual, and substantial. Simple, because I'm quoting him, the New Testament does not prescribe a complex ritual of service as is found in the Old Testament. Spiritual, because when Jesus removed the special status of Jerusalem as the place where God was to be worshipped, that's... That strikes me as an incomplete sentence, but anyways, that's the sentence. And then substantial, because the God of the Bible is a great God and cannot be worshipped appropriately with forms that are light, flippant, or superficial. That would be an answer to the low church. But in answer to the high church, it's simple and spiritual. In answer to low church, it's substantial. He must always be rev- uh, worshipped, he says, with reverence in all. Hebrews chapter twelve twenty two. And so Presbyterianism, I've been arguing, is best suited to uh, capture the balance and really to capture the best of both. And I think all of us today as modern evangelicals have had, uh, have had a taste and a longing for both. As some of us coming out of the low church were longing for something more substantial. Others of us coming out of a more high church experience were longing for something that was uh, less formal and was uh, more spiritual and simple. So that's Terry Johnson's list. Hughes Olive and Olds characterizes Reformed worship under four headings. He says it is, this is in his book, uh, Worship Reformed According to Scripture. One, it is according to Scripture. Number two, it is in the name of Christ. Number three, it is seen as the work of the Holy Spirit. There you could see scriptural and spiritual. And, and again, Terry Johnson was a student of Hughes Olive and Old. And then number four, this is very helpful in the sense up on my list. And again, this is an answer to the low church, but also to the high church. It's edifying. In other words, when you, when you come away from the worship service, you feel that y- your soul was blessed or, or that your, your soul was nourished. Uh, because as Peter says, we're supposed to show up hungry. And uh, the question, well, that's the question to you. Did you show up hungry? And if you didn't, maybe that's a sign of your spiritual state. But if you didn't leave full, then that's more of uh, an indictment against the church. And, and, I, and I would have to say that was my biggest complaint coming out of a more broadly evangelical low church setting is that I always showed up hungry and I always left hungry. And, uh, and it, I found that to be eternally frustrating. Uh, I did not think it was too much to ask of the church to feed me especially these evangelical churches with not just a single pastor, but a full staff. And was it too much to ask for teaching that fed my soul? Apparently it was. What does the church offer, by the way, in those settings in, in, instead of hearty, meaty meals? What do they offer? Entertainment is a good word. And it's interesting to see John Owen using that word in his day. Uh, and I could quote him to show you, uh, Dave. Therapeutic moralism, that's good too. You get the TED Talks from the pulpit. Uh, there's another word I'm looking for though. Programs. You have programs. And that's why you need a whole staff of pastors. Uh, you need four or five pastors. Uh, because you need to oversee all the programs. But I'm still wondering what they're doing during the week. Are they spending at least one of the pastors? Is he spending any time preparing his sermons? You sit in the pew and you, and you wonder. Uh, so... Worship ought to be edifying. This is something that speaks to the believer. Again, the believer who is hungry. So, 
I am, oh, and also, by the way, the believer who ought to be built up. You remember Romans begins, uh, and I preached a whole sermon on this. Paul's saying that, let, let me see if I can find it. I think it's verse 9. Oh, it's verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. It's the same idea. He wanted to bless those Christians. He also says, I think in the next verse, I just closed my Bible, so I won't check, but that he wanted to receive a blessing from them. Paul wanted to be edified. We're all weak, we're all needy, we're all poor. That's the Sermon on the Mount, that's the Beatitudes. The question is, can we be filled? And where, where might we be filled? Not in, uh, not in small group studies, but in the worship of God. It's a, this is just a different ecclesiology. How is the Christian to be filled? So here is my list, and you can see it's really just a hybrid of those two lists. It is, first of all, worship is, first of all, scriptural. And this is something, by the way, each of these qualities, I, I, I think I'm going to do this next time. You can take each quality and you can apply it to each practice. And so uh, the forms ought to be scriptural. The Lord's Supper ought to be done in a scriptural manner. The preaching and, and so on. Uh, the principle here of scriptural religion could be stated in two different ways. Do, do, do you want to tell me what those are? Sola Scriptura. That's, again, one of the three pillars of the Reformation. Uh, but, but also the regulative principle of worship, or RPW. Again, this is not something that you will find in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not something that you will find in the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church is the normative principle, uh, which is if it's, not, if it's not forbidden, it's permitted, and so they're much more permissive. And, uh, and certainly you won't find it in the low church setting. But, but the distinctive element of Reformed worship is the regulative principle of worship. The idea that Scripture must, as closely as possible, adhere to the teaching of Scripture. Now, Admittedly, and this is where there is room for charity, uh, the Bible does not set forth an airtight ecclesiology. The, New Testament, the Old Testament does, but the New Testament doesn't. It does not prescribe, for instance, an order of worship. It does not prescribe uh, an exact model of how you would, uh, how you would govern the church. There, there is... I think there is room for charity about how you go about that. I, I am arguing that Presbyterianism is best, but I'm not looking at, let's say, uh, a Baptist church that says the ecclesiology is the, the elders are the preachers and then the deacons are, it's just a pure two office. They have a different model of governance. They don't have the presence, for instance, of the ruling elder, which is one of the distinctive elements of Presbyterian churches, I, I, I'm not saying, well, you know, these guys have got it all wrong. I disagree with them, but I, I do think that there's room for charity. What we're aiming for, as the confession says, that churches are more or less pure. None of us are perfectly pure. We want to be as pure as possible. And so as we look at things like our order of worship or our government, we want to try to make it as much according to the wisdom of God and not according to the wisdom of man. And, and the reality of that is that that kind of uh, program or system is, is not a popular one. It wasn't a popular one in Paul's day. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're 
consumed with the idea of growth, and I'm going to preach a sermon on church growth, but if that's your, and I'll teach a lesson on one as well, growth for growth's sake, uh, the regular principle will be your great enemy. <laughs> uh, but if you're totally committed, one, to the Bible, and to, two, uh, building a church with spiritual people who are seeking spiritual worship, then it's your ticket. Uh, where would we find the regulated principle in worship? There's one classic text. The second commandment. In the second commandment, what God is saying, uh, first commandment, God is saying that he alone is to be worshipped and no other. In the second commandment, he's saying that he alone can define what true worship looks like. So the first commandment condemns worshiping false gods. The second commandment condemns worshiping the true God falsely. And that's what we're trying to avoid as best we can. Again, the Bible doesn't say, here's what an order of worship looks like. But when you look at a passage like Acts 2.42, you get a very clear sense of what they were doing. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were doing so on the Lord's Day. They were breaking bread, the Lord's Supper. They were praying. They were fellowshipping. I mean, that sounds an awful like a lot like what we're doing. Number two, uh, it is spiritual in the sense that worship is to be spirit-filled. When Paul in Ephesians describes Christian worship, he describes it as a result of the ministry and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Let's see. Uh, through 21, he says... Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he offers four participles. The main verb is be filled with the Spirit. But then four participles which qualify the verb be filled. In other words, there are four outcomes which will result when you are full of the Holy Spirit. Namely, um, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts always. Uh, so that, that was two, actually. It's a ministry of praise in the church. Giving thanks, number three, always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that would be a ministry of praise, wouldn't it? Uh, which would also include prayer and then submitting to one another in the fear of God. So speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting, where he's describing a Christian fellowship. These are the things that occur when the Spirit is present. And so it is our belief, and this is certainly one of the great antidotes to formalism, which you find in the, in, in the high church, uh, is, is that we are looking for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And because that's what we're looking for, we are doing those activities which we believe he is most likely to bless. Again, we are consulting not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of God. When uh, the Puritans would speak of the means of grace, they would, they would speak of them as channels through which mercy and grace flowed to the believers. Uh, when, when Christ says, come unto me, here is where he's found. He's found in the preaching. He's found in the presence and the gathering of the saints. He's found in the Lord's Supper. Uh, he's found in prayer. Presbyterian worship is simple. 
This is, this is something that, that answers, again, both to the high and the low church. You would think this is a high church antidote, but it is equally a low church antidote. When I think of the broad evangelical church today, especially the church growth types of churches, I think of complicated worship. I think about... Um, uh, there's another word I'm looking for, but it's not coming to me at the moment. Uh, confusing worship. But our God is not a God of confusion, but of order. That's going to be the next word, by the way. There, there is a real simplicity to Presbyterian worship. Uh, this is a reason that we, don't, we want to avoid the booklet model. You, you go to church and your, your, your bulletin is a booklet. It's not, it's not a page, it's a book. In fact, I would prefer no bulletin, but I, that seems to be blasphemy. Uh, but, I, but I think our worship is so simple. Why do you even need a bulletin? I Call such and such a hymn, call such and such a text. We're going to pray now. It, it's a very simple structure. Uh, but the more elaborate and the more ornate it becomes, the further you get away from that. And the reality is that in a very elaborate service, you can get lost. Uh, and, and, and you can also check out. But we want, this is looking forward to edifying, but we want people to be always engaged in what God is calling them to. And it is a very simple structure. We talked about this earlier, the dialogical principle. God is speaking, we're responding. God is speaking, we're responding all the way to the end. But God gets the first word and the last with the, the salutation, the call to worship, and the benediction. So this is in keeping theologically with the greater simplicity of the new covenant. The old covenant was a, a, an administration of heavy legal demands. Uh, it was, I mean, it put the high church to shame. Uh, it was so meticulous that it was, frankly, impossible. And that really was the point. It was seen as a period of bondage. Uh, and the law was their tutor. And it was teaching them an important lesson. But coming into the new covenant, when the new wine is poured into the new wineskins, as Jesus says, there is a greater simplicity. Again, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 7, section 6. I won't read that, but that gives a wonderful description of that idea. Presbyterian worship is orderly. Now, even when I was, before I was an evangelical, a broad evangelical, which, by the way, I would not consider myself broad evangelical anymore. We can talk about that at another date. Uh, I would consider myself reformed, and I do make a distinction there. But I was a liberal Presbyterian, then I was an evangelical, then I was a charismatic, and then ultimately I was a reformed uh, believer, and I haven't looked back since then. But even going back to the beginning, there was an interesting symmetry there. began uh, liberal reformed, ended conservative reformed. But I remember my mother saying that uh, the, th- this is a half-truth, but that the Presbyterians were the frozen chosen. Uh, and so the idea being uh, that you're not going to see chaotic outbursts uh, or, or chaotic worship in a Presbyterian worship service, that, such as you might see in a more low church setting, um, which I certainly saw when I went into the charismatic church. Uh, people in the middle of worship just bursting out into tongue speaking. Uh, so it's orderly. This, this is the thing, I think, which most distinguishes Reformed worship. Does anyone know the passage which uh, defends this? I've actually already quoted it. The passage which defends this principle. Uh, well... 
it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Actually, I don't think I quoted it. I said, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That might be just before or just after. I don't remember. But he says all things, and he's describing what happens when Christians come together in the setting of worship. And he says, all things are to be done decently and in order. All things. And what Paul is arguing against in that chapter is things were getting out of hand. They were becoming chaotic and confusing. And he's reminding them to do things in an orderly way. Number five, Christian worship is marked by integrity, which repudiates formalism. If you think about Jesus in the Gospels, what he was so often uh, arguing against among the Pharisees was not their uh, excessive adherence to the forms of Judaism, but it was that they were consistently missing the spirit of the forms, which made them the opposite of a man who has integrity, namely a hypocrite. Their worship was hypocritical, Jesus was saying. It's possible to adhere to the forms in a very religious sense and to be a hypocrite. But what we are seeking to do is to adhere to the biblical forms in such a way that our hearts are in it always. Now, there is this idea, and this is more of a low church sentiment, that as long as your heart is in it, it doesn't matter what the form is. That explains the modern evangelical church. Because really, anything goes as long as you're sincere. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, the high church is saying, you know, it doesn't matter if your heart is in it, as long as you're doing the thing, as long as you're doing the duty. But the, 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 the Presbyterian ideal is saying, no, we ought to adhere to those forms which God promises to bless, but only if our heart is in it. In fact, Jesus says his first example in the Sermon on the Mount of hypocritical religion is what? It's giving your offering when you're unreconciled to your brother. In other words, he's talking about worship. You, you, you put your money in the plate, but you are unreconciled to your brother. What does that make you? A hypocrite. And so part of the work of preparing for worship is to be sure not only that you are right with God, but that you are right with your brother. You're not at odds with your brother with whom you are about to break bread and to give thanks together. Number six, I covered this earlier, but it's edifying. Now, I'm I'm reading from the outline. This is something we take for granted. Uh, What is the word the modern evangelical church uses about a a good worship service? There's a word that they always use. Moving is a good one. That's not the one I had in mind, actually. Uplifting. That was an uplifting message, Pastor. Um, There is some truth to that. I think, by and large, they're missing the point, but there is some truth to that. I think everybody would agree that worship ought to be edifying. But the question which we ask and which we want to know the answer to is what is the kind of worship which is most edifying? And I, I don't think this is hard to figure out. Uh, there, there, are, there are two ways to find the answer to this. And I've been talking about this the whole time. Number one. If you read your Bibles, you might get a sense. And, and, and as a close corollary to that, you could read history and look at the times of revival and see what was God using to bless the church. Now, there's an answer to that. There's the same answer in every revival. Do you know what that is? Can you tell me, Glenn? Well, there's a number of answers I suppose you could give. I mean, I'm thinking preaching. Preaching. Word, preaching. Yes. It was always through preaching. God raised up preachers, 
who preached his word again afresh with new power in a spiritual fashion. And the church was built up. The church has never been built up in any other way. But the other way to answer that question is a more subjective one. But again, viewing the Christian as someone who is, uh, is discouraged from a week, uh, another week in the world, and, uh, and, and maybe he didn't have the most edifying Bible reading times, but even if he did, he shows up hungry. And again, the question is, did he leave full? And I would argue that in most cases, either in a high or a low church setting, he leaves, he leaves hungry. I remember one time uh, a deacon at another church telling me about his pastor uh, that he always preaches two sermons in one, but he was okay with that because he always uh, he always left full. So even if after the first sermon uh, he stopped listening to the second, it was all right. He still got one sermon. Now that was a very I think spiritual way of saying I'm thankful for my pastor. Uh, and even though it was it was well known of this preacher that. Uh, he, he packed his sermons way too full and he talked way too fast. And so very fast preaching and still 45 minutes. You can imagine how much information the congregation was subjected to. But you know what he said? This uh, layman, this deacon, I always left full. And so he was thankful to his pastor. I, I, I always remember that. And I love that way of viewing things. Uh, and so too much is always better than too little. But then, um, number seven, uh, it is neither high church nor, lo- nor low church. The, 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 the goal here is to strike the balance between form and freedom. And that would be more, if, if I read it, the outline as I did now in my notes, I would actually take that one off. That's more of a summary. It's really one through six. And the goal of one through six is in order to strike the balance. So maybe if you want, you could put that in parentheses. The balance, again, between form and freedom. Where the qualities are present in the practices, the spirit and the form will be held in balance, and they'll also meet together. Uh, So, let me uh, review what Terry Johnson has to say about this, and then give an example. And once again, I uh, I haven't even gotten halfway through my lesson. Um. Terry Johnson says that we must strike a balance between form and freedom. And he says in another place, I quoted this earlier, that Presbyterianism is neither high nor low church. Worship that is simple, spiritual, and substantial does just that. Again, it strikes the balance. It avoids the excesses of high church liturgy while avoiding at the same time the triviality of low church worship. And he gives an example, which is also an example that can be found in Hughes Oliphant Old's book on prayer, which is prayer. And I want to read from both of these books. So what is the hallmark of the evangelical uh, or the low church and frankly even the Presbyterian view of prayer? In contrast to the high church, what would you say the hallmark of it is? There's a word, extemporaneous. Whereas you find in a high church setting, written prayers. Although, as Daryl points out, uh, you had written prayers in Calvin's Geneva that the congregation would read together. I I suppose my low church sentiments are are not quite willing to accept that just yet. Uh, But uh, if you go to many churches, it's not just the sermons which are an embarrassment, but it's the prayers 
are an embarrassment. Uh, the pastor stands up and he prays a prayer that uh, leaves something to be desired. This is what Hughes Olive and Old says. And this is something actually that's becoming a matter of personal study for myself. He says, for many generations, American Protestants have prized spontaneity. So there's another word, spontaneity in public prayer. I hope it will always be so. So he's not arguing for written prayers, neither is Terry Johnson. But listen to their antidote to uh, a medicine that became too strong. One has to admit, however, that the spontaneous prayer one often hears in public worship is an embarrassment to the tradition. It all too often lacks content. It may be sincere, but sometimes it is not very profound. One notices sometimes that the approach to prayer that these prayers uh, reveal is immature, if not simply misleading. Spontaneity needs to be balanced by careful preparation and forethought. It needs to be supported by an intense prayer life on the part of the minister. One must be well experienced in prayer to lead in prayer. One can hardly lead if one does not know the way oneself. Spontaneity has to arise from a profound experience of prayer. Now, one of the things he advocates uh, for the younger minister, which I used to do, and he gives examples, is to write out your prayers in advance, but then to leave them on your desk. Now, in the very earliest days, I did that. Um, what, what, let me put this bookmark back. Well, I don't know where it was. What Terry Johnson argues for, again, not wanting to see written prayers. And by the way, have you ever been in a church with, let's say, an intern or a young associate? I have, by the way, where the the, let's say the, the, the new associate, it doesn't quite have the gift of prayer. And so he reads his prayers. Uh, it, it, It strikes me as a very painful experience. Uh, There is something about prayer that's missing when you do that. Um, But there is also something that can be lost if the prayers are too casual and too flippant. What Terry Johnson advocates for, again, as a good student of old, is what he calls studied prayer. And let me read a little bit of what he has to say. He says, we have sought to encourage a limited use of written prayers. So uh, maybe that's the way to go while relying mainly on free, scripture-based prayers. Well, then he quotes, he quotes actually Hughes Olive and Old, so I can leave it, I can leave it there. Uh, but then he also, he also gives uh, a list of books that were written, such as Old's book, but there were others, in which uh, they were written for ministers to teach them what is the art of praying. And uh, we, we have to admit, this is, again, I'm, I'm borrowing from, from, uh, from, from old when he says that there is a language of prayer. There is a flavor of prayer. There's an atmosphere of prayer that one has to learn in two ways. One, through praying. Uh, one has to be familiar enough with God and, and what it is to pray publicly. Uh, but number two, um, through the study of Scripture. Scripture teaches us uh, what prayers look like. There, there are many prayers in Scripture. So studied prayer, that's an interesting balance, you see. It adheres to the form of prayer. You see, prayer has its own form. Prayer, in a sense, to use uh, Hart's language, is a ritual. But it is a ritual which is capable of a free and spontaneous expression. 
But there is not an unlimited freedom in prayer. And just as there is not, we could apply the same thing to preaching. There is not an unlimited freedom in preaching. This is something I might look at next time. Uh, that same idea that preaching has its own form. That's why sometimes you listen to a sermon and you think, I don't think that was preaching. Uh, it, it, pre- there is a certain thing called preaching. Uh, but at the same time, there is a strong element of freedom. Uh, to balance that out, by the way, uh, the, a- the absence of that freedom, and I- I'll get into this, would be when your text was assigned because of the church calendar. Or even worse... When you read prepared prayers, now there's some modern controversy, I don't really follow these things too closely, but there was some prominent Southern Baptist who was actually reading prepared prayer, or sermons, excuse me, uh, but that actually is historical precedent. They were called postals that were written, and, and unlearned ministers would read those to their congregations, which admittedly is better than nothing. But I think we would agree that's not the ideal. If I, if I stood up there and read Luther's postals, It would be better than nothing, but I think you would expect more from me. All right. I want to review with the time that we have left Martin Lloyd-Jones' argument where he describes not the freedom in form, but kind of an analog to it, the spirit and the form. Uh, And and he, he says that he's quoting, let me see, Dean Inge who wrote a book on Protestantism, and he says every institution tends to produce its opposite. In other words, uh, the institution begins out of its own convictions to create a program. Now, you think about the Presbyterian Church. It had a, a style of worship, a view of preaching, liturgy, and so forth. But the irony, and one can find this today in a liberal Presbyterian Church, is that their liturgy and beauty exceeds our own. If you've ever been to... First Presbyter- Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, in, in any town, you'll, you'll always be struck by the careful, structured Presbyterian liturgy, at least if you have any sense of historical Presbyterianism. But the thing that's missing is the spirit. <laughs> in their excessive adherence to the forms, they've actually produced the opposite of the convictions that created the forms in the first place. And so that's the tragedy of the history, not just of Protestantism, but of every institution. It tends to produce its opposite. Now, what the, the answer of evangelicalism in answer to the liberal Protestant church is what? Throw away the forms, maximize the spirit. But, as I've argued, the irony of that, and, and, and Terry Johnson argues for that as well, is that they end up committing the same error in opposite fashion. Because in abandoning the forms, they forget what they're even doing. And so they are just in a, 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 an anchorless abyss, and anything goes. And, and you wouldn't be surprised to find in those settings that they're not very theologically tight. They're, in fact, very theologically loose. And so what is the answer? The answer is to strive for balance. Not an excessive adherence to form, nor an excessive adherence to freedom, but to strive for balance, to adhere to the biblical forms while maintaining the spirit. And there's really only one way to do that, and that is through a constant work of examination. Uh, As the pastor and the elders, we, we have to come back to these things and say, now why are we doing them? 
And that's the kind of question that we as a church have to be asking ourselves all the time. And it, don't, it won't do to say, well, I've just never known anything different. This is what, the way we grew up. Uh, this was the church I grew up in or something like that. One of the beauties of the freedom is that we have the freedom to change things if we decide that something is out of place. Now, example of that would be the fact that we went to the weekly communion. We realized that we, something was missing and that we needed to correct our practice. Uh, and that the, the, the tragedy of having once a month communion as opposed to weekly was not that you elevated your view of the Lord's Supper, but that you actually lost the very spirit of the Lord's Supper as an act of worship. Uh, and so in order to underscore that, uh, we, we made it weekly. And so you have to, you have to be uh, willing to ask yourself, why are we doing these things? Uh, but then arriving at good answers, uh, then, then you go forward with, uh, with strong conviction that these are the things we ought to be doing. These are the biblical and the Presbyterian forms. So again, Presbyterianism, and this, this is where I guess we'll begin next time, is the bottom of the handout, is the balance which Presbyterianism holds uh, by looking at and considering the spectrum, even though I've, I've been doing that throughout. We'll look at that a little bit more closely uh, and then take, uh, take some examples of preaching and, and perhaps one other thing. And then uh, Daryl has a great chapter on the forming of a low church tradition. It's another historical study, but I think it's an important one. Sometimes uh, the modern Protestant thinks this is the way it's always been. And if only he knew his history, he would realize that somewhere along the way, Protestantism in America lost its way. And it has continued to be so to, the, to this day. And perhaps exploring the spirit of, uh, of those people in the Second Great Awakening, we would uh, d- decide we agree with them. Or perhaps we would realize, no, something precious was lost in that, in that time. And we would wish to regain uh, the spirit of the earlier Protestants. Uh, but that, that's, that's a subject for uh, future study. So let's close with prayer at this point and head next door. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the, the, the subject which we are privileged here to explore, and that is our own heritage as Presbyterians, and, and even our own place within the broader church. Lord, we don't want to become proud. We don't want to become condescending. And yet at the same time, we have to admit that the state of the church as we find it today and as we look about is is one which makes us grieve and it is lamentable. And we would ask you, Holy Father, that you would give us a zealous concern for your worship, just as you have been seeking to instill in your people all along from the very beginning. And, uh, and out of that zeal, that it would not only purify us, but that it would overflow into a concern for our brothers and other churches, that perhaps they would be prepared to listen to us as well. That is to say, oh God, give us uh, a concern not only for ourselves, but a concern for true Christian witness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.